0: For me, it was very important also to describe a little bit this process in which one loses his individuality and becomes part of a group of a mob uh, conforming and hiding himself against others. And if Matthias understands something by the end of the film is that even if you don't want to get involved socially, it doesn't mean that you don't carry... A responsibility.
1: Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode... Director Cristian Mungiu paints a portrait of ethnic and economic resentments in a small Romanian mountain town in his film RMN, which was screened as part of the DGA's global cinema series. After a violent incident at his job in Germany, a father returns home to his family in their Transylvanian village in Romania. But when the local factory hires foreign workers, deep-rooted impulses and resentments emerge, shattering the veneer of peace in the community. Munju's other directorial credits include the features Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days, Graduation, Beyond the Hills, and Occident. Following the Global Cinema Series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Munju spoke with director Victoria Hochberg about the film. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Welcome to the Directors
2: Guild of America. We have a large number of guild members here tonight. Many of them have seen two other of your films that we've shown over the years, Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days in 2008, and Graduation in 2017. So we're especially happy to finally meet you in person, sort of, Zoom person. My name is Victoria Hochberg, Chair of the Global Cinema Committee I have a few questions for you. RM, are you ready?
0: Yes, absolutely, <laughs> okay, all
2: Good, thank you. RM, and is a particularly dense film, not in terms of fancy special effects, but rather with complicated characters, themes, and feelings. I'm curious how you wrangled this mass of material to shape it into a story.
0: Um, well, um, actually, I think that maybe it's too dense. This is why what, what people say, or at least some film critics, but, um, it starts from how I see cinema somehow. Um, I think that we are producing, we're producing today, um, a lot of content, a lot of films. And therefore, I think that it's important to make sure that you speak about something relevant when you start making a film. I only make films only every four or five years. I need a long while to make sure that I understand something new, important, relevant, a new angle in which I can talk about this world. And therefore, when I start, I need to make sure that it's something actual and relevant. And I thought that I can add a lot of layers on top of this uh, original story that I uh, read about, because originally this was a piece of news that everybody read in the newspapers in Romania, then it became Europe. And of course, as you know, the press um, doesn't have all the details. It It is just uh, interested in, um, I wouldn't say the scandal, but, you know, the the spectacular aspect of it. Right. While for me, it's really more important to get deeper and to speak about, to speak about our character as human beings and to understand why things happen. And I thought that this story speaks not only about xenophobia, but it, it speaks about our dual character, if you want, because... We consider saying that we are very evolved uh, creatures, but actually we are a mix of human traits, and we are very capable sometimes of empathy and forgiveness. But at other times, we are still very instinctual and animalic, I would say, and we have to acknowledge that this is who we are as well, and that fear and anxiety are very important Um, motives, reasons, impulses that guide our behavior. So um, I thought that this is complex enough because it speaks about uh, how we relate to the other and about our natural instinct of um, consider the other rather a potential enemy than a friend, than somebody belonging to our tribe. I think we're still very tribal animals, to be honest. And um, then it was something else which was interesting in this case. Um, You know, normally you would expect people coming from a small community which represents a minority somewhere, as the Hungarians represented here in this area of Romania. You would expect more understanding and empathy towards people coming Mm -hmm. from far away and becoming an even smaller minority, or it wasn't the case. And the other thing is that we as people, um, we, I don't know, move quite a lot in Europe and very many people work abroad. And sometimes they are not very pleased with how they are treated over there. Hmm. But once somebody else even poorer than us came more from the East, uh, we didn't show too much empathy. So we start wondering why, and this is why finally I think that I um, wrote a screenplay in which I made sure that besides the main storyline, which hopefully everybody can understand, there are a lot of other layers about human natures.
2: Right. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, Matthias is a difficult character to feel warm and cozy about. He headbutts another worker. He cheated on his wife. My question is, how did you work? with your actor, Marine Grigore, is that how you pronounce him? Mm-hmm. To show the nuances of his character so that we can see him something other than a bully.
0: Um, you know, first of all, um, there is a question about what makes a character a main character and what do we expect from him? And um, I think he is a very unusual main character right. for let's say, the way we normally understand mainstream cinema in the sense that he doesn't evolve too much, he doesn't understand way too much at the end of the film that he did at the beginning. Still, he evolves enough to have some doubts. Um, And also, um, it's connected to what are the expectations of the audience. I don't think that the main characters should necessarily be uh, nice and a good example this is a film and um, my kind of cinema is very much connected to observing reality and life so for me it's important that the main character is truthful not so much any kind of moral I don't know guide or uh, and 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 therefore it was important that he reacts um as everybody considered to be believable in the given situations. Um, I, I don't, I don't, um, I do something for my actors. I write their biography since day one before they start shooting. So they know pretty much what happened, not only a little bit before the film, but all along their life up to that moment, what was his, for example, past relationship with Sheila, why he went working, I can't say why he cheated on his wife, because, uh, you know, that's a bit more complicated, but what were the circumstances, let's say. Um, so he knew a little bit about this. But to be honest, I um, treat every other actor differently, I in a different way. I just try to understand what he needs. If he needs a lot of explanations, a lot of background, I would get into it. If he needs a lot of talking about the psychological situation, we would talk. Uh, but Marine, for example, he, uh, which I knew from before a little bit, um, with him I was just rather focusing on the truthfulness of every other scene, okay. trying not to get too much into the to the actor, because as you know, there's this danger that um, if they think too much about this actor, actors might interpret the the meaning of the film and not the truth of the situation itself.
2: Very so interesting. I took it,
0: right. Situation by situation, um, and I did something else that I started doing a while ago. I won't give the actors the full screenplay right. because, for example, it is crucial for him in the last scenes that he's not aware what Chilla did while he wasn't there in his real life. So it's better for him as an actor as well not to know. Uh, of course, after the second take, he will know. But um, He will know what happens, but still he doesn't know what she did, because this is um, using subjective points of view, and it's a way of being, again, very close to life and reality. We don't know what other people do now. We just know what we do. So this is why he's so as surprised as the the audience at the end of the film when she says, uh, I'm sorry, sorry. forgive me.
2: Thank you. Um, Your use of ambient sound is subtle and mysterious, can you talk about that part, the part that sound plays in your film? Because it's really special. I've In your other films, I even noticed it from the beginning. So talk about that, because as filmmakers, we, we do use sound, but yours is really terrific. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, thank you for this question. We work so much for the sound that um, this is going to be a relief as well for my sound designer and mixer. Okay. Um, the idea is, you know, it all starts from how I conceive my films. Um, I use master shots for every other scene um, somehow because I consider that I don't want to make myself too visible as a filmmaker, and to use that part part of the film grammar that belongs a lot to you, to your subject subjective decision as a filmmaker. Therefore I won't, I don't use editing within the scene and I don't use music, like non-diegetical music right. edit. Won't use this. And therefore this is why I need the sound to have the, you know, to play the part that music normally plays in a mainstream film. The sound uh, gives the rhythm for me. The sound needs to uh, suggest what characters feel. It contributes a little bit to the tension of the scene, and it needs to enrich a lot the atmosphere. No music, or since there's just this music coming from, uh, you know, what people listen. It's it's crucial that a lot of this atmosphere of thriller, let's say, sometimes and of tension comes from how I design the song. And the other thing is that as soon as you start working with master shots you realize immediately that you will lose some of the situation because you don't shoot the reverse. And therefore, a lot of, you know, uh, quite important information is coming in my films only on the sound level. And this is why the mix tries to keep it, I don't know, high enough, relevant enough, so that you have some chances of understanding what happened. For example, there's this scene at the beginning in which I speak about this fear that the child experiences in front of the world, in front of something that he sees. But it's not that for me to show what he sees. Right. But I give some hints through the sound. Uh, and actually, I don't show it because, um, you know, if we have a, a nightmare, um, it's not very precise what haunts us, but we feel the fear, but we, we don't see necessarily the things that scare us the most. So I try to use the sound in this in this way as well. And uh, also, you know, there's another crucial scene uh, later in the film when she's alone and she's taking a, a shower and the telephone rings and she comes to answer. Um, and that's a very important scene for me, which uh, uh, in which I understand why people don't notice the small extra sounds which come from behind, but they are important because um, they signal that there's somebody else in the room. And, you know, this makes a little bit of a difference. Um, I'm not saying that it's easy to follow um, uh, films like this because you're not used to. But finally, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, this is what we all should be trying to do to refresh the language of cinema from time to time and to encourage people to use their I don't know spiritual, critical spirit and sense of observation.
2: Yeah, incredible. Thank you. In fact, there were several times during the when I was watching the film at home, I thought there were people right outside my door because and I I turned the sound off and of course it was your ambient sound. It was just wonderful.
0: Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, for example, you know, one special scene was you know that very very long scene. In which we planted a lot of microphones and we brought several uh, sound teams. Uh, that that has a special mix because it it has a special use of sound. You know, normally we encourage actors to speak one after the other because this is how we write screenplays to start with. But for that scene to be able to shoot it in a very believable way, I had to train the actors to speak at the same time with the others and right. not one after the other. We all write the screenplay like this, one line and another line. But when I got to the set to shoot that thing, I was having a a scene of 26 pages. And, you know, I knew that I need to have just one take. So I merged the first seven or eight Mm -hmm. pages with the next ones. And if you listen to the mix, and eventually if you know the two languages, the Romanian and the Hungarian, which are spoken there, there's a very... Polyphonic kind of sound because you can you can understand both both things. One is leading, but all the comments, for example, from this uh, uh, gathering, which for me is like a Greek choir, right. for once I could shoot the community, the collective character. Right. They are commenting all the time, and in the origin, it's hard to translate. But in the original language, it gives you a very good feeling that you're also. Um, aware of what they think and of what they comment at the same time. And you get a little bit of a feeling of this uh, uh, collective attitude.
2: Great. we've just answered about four questions at once, but we're going to get back to that main meeting, which is incredible. But okay. Um, Your your films are tremendously tense. You, You just mentioned that. And your use of locations as well often adds to that. The Winter Forest in RMN. Then a woman racing to dinner through the streets and on the tram in, um, while her friend is getting an abortion in four months. The empty moving ski lift. The ski lift in, uh, you know, in graduation when the father is trying to talk to the police inspector, I think he was. And you set it on the top of a mountain on a ski lift, which is moving up into empty chairs. It was like. Oh, my gosh, what is this? So um, can you talk a bit about who, how you use locations and what you look for when you're choosing them for a specific reason that's in your head?
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, I think that um, one of the most difficult things that we have to do in film is to find the equivalent of this abstract level that we want to pass together with the story. And, for example, in this story, I really wanted to speak about fear and anxiety. And I, for me, it's very important to make the spectators not only just one that understand what happens to the characters, but experience, feel as well. And this is why I'm shooting wintertime, and this is why I try all the time to use the kind of music and setting that can, I don't know, transmit as much as possible what the main character feels. And then um, there's a special use of setting that I need. For example, for this film, I thought that I hoped that this forest surrounding this village and uh, being uh, in the back lot of every other house would more or less suggest little by little the darkness of this community which is very secluded. And I hope that, you know, people might associate this at at some point with our subconscious, you know, from where all these dark impulses are coming because it's also very gloomy, not very precise, very deep down. We don't control it. And I looked a lot for a location like this. Uh, Of course, you cannot always find precisely what you need, but I started doing something. For example, I started, for every other of my last three or four films, I built directly on the main location. So Chila's house in this film, which is very important, is built from the scratch. I was just uh, scouting for the best position in the village because, you know, the last shot is very complex. The camera starts from inside, but he comes from outside, gets inside the room, talks to her, gets on the other door, Climbs a mountain, right. the camera turns down, and you see him be, be, between this forest and the community and the village. Right. So, I cannot really find these locations, which I imagine when while I write, I need to. I don't know. Um, so you build them. you built her house? Is that what you're saying? We built wow. everything. They all the set of her house, and um, because it, some of the locations are very specific, very precise. When I when I write. And therefore, my scouting process is a process in which I try to identify them. Um, but, of course, some of them you can, some of them you cannot. There's another thing, for example, for this big bakery. It was important for me, even if it's not clear in the film, that their offices are on different floors. Right. And that, uh, you know, the we regular, see, yeah, we regular see workers, the working class is on the, on bottom. the bottom. Right. So I needed to build this. And I just found the right people who allowed me to build the sets in their, I don't know, bakery. They were very, very nice, I have to say. And it's a very little thing, but it's a way of also communicating non-verbally. And this is the role of the sets for me.
2: Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Although the, the main character in... Um, MRN is Matthias. It's really Chilia or Chila. I don't know how you pronounce. Say it again. Chila. Chila, Mm -hmm. who carries the moral intelligence of the story. Uh, She befriends the Sri Lankans. She goes up against a mob of her fellow citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, Is this the real message that you're trying to convey? That we all need that kind of courage.
0: Yes, in a sense, yes. But um, I'm trying all the time not to just convey one specific message. Oh, no, no.
2: I know you're not going to do just one specific <laughs> yeah. message. Yes, that's clear.
0: So, um, uh, you know, uh, whenever we're trying to translate what we wish to tell um, with the film verbally, as you know, there's a – we're reducing somehow the what, what we mean – but indeed, what, what matters for me with this character of hers is a way of saying that um, people like her uh, and people like her in society are those who are pushing the society forward. Not necessarily because are, their ideas are you know more progressive, but because they have the strength to oppose everybody else believing that they are right because they have principles. And they have the strength to defend their principles. In that grouping of scenes over there with Chila, and when they talk, for me it was very important also to um, describe a little bit this process in which one loses his individuality and becomes part of a group of a mob uh, conforming and hiding himself against others like a small sheep in a herd of sheep because, of course, the sheep are not accidental in the film. And uh, opposite to, to this attitude is Sheila. And if Matthias understands something by the end of the film is that even if you don't want to get involved socially, it doesn't mean that you don't carry a responsibility. You are still responsible to have an attitude, right. and eventually he will learn this the hard way by the end of the film.
2: Yeah. Sooner or later. Good. Thank you.
0: So later you understand that you know um, you cannot uh, just stay aside, no. be aside and let the others decide hoping that you won't have any guilt, uh, but you know, characters pushing things forward are always those who are active. And because she's active, she learns something else, which is important, that eventually if you take the time and you have the curiosity to know the other, to get into a dialogue with, with him, as she does with her workers, well, you will see that they are much, you know, closer to you and much that's more like than true. you imagined. If you just keep this distance and judge based on your regular stereotypes, you know, these people will, will also would also feel very, very distant from you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Um, The highlight of the film is the town hall scene. Um, It is one single shot with several speaking parts, as you've said, and overlapping dialogue. Since you're speaking to directors here, we're anxious to know how you planned this scene, what obstacles you faced. And what surprises came up. It's an an incredible challenge to do what you did. And we're all, I I am, I'm sure they are, in awe of how you did this scene. So could you talk a little bit about that?
0: First of all, thank you. You're very generous. Um, Yes, indeed, that's that's complicated. And I knew it's going to be complicated uh, from the moment I wrote it. I knew that it needs to be very long and heavy and dense. And of course, the first challenge was uh, I didn't have too much time to shoot it, to be honest. I only had two days and one day uh, prior to the starting of the shooting to rehearse. And of course, the the moment when I was explaining a little bit to the actors how we're going to do it, that was the first challenge because some of the actors um, realized immediately that they are going to be behind the camera for 17 minutes. And as you imagine, that's not nice for an actor. So I did a few things. I built on the end of that uh, town hall um, a wall of mirrors so that they feel that they are in the shot and they were somehow in the shot, even if they're small. But psychologically, this gave them the feeling that they should focus as if I'm shooting them as well. Then I started with them just to establish them. And then I invented a second camera like from the situation. I invented the journalist who was shooting with the second camera, just the people speaking in front of the audience. I believe the actors suspected or knew that I won't be using that material, but still it helped them (laughs) focus. You know, you have a camera in front of you as an actor. That's correct. It helps you. And then there were Two other important decisions. One of them regarded this use of sound, and I have I have to say that this is something that somehow I discovered uh, while rehearsing the scene. I I started uh, shooting the scene at the beginning of this, you know, first day of shooting. Um, I knew that I'm only having two, and it didn't go well, well at the all. First, the
2: first day of shooting that scene, not the first day of shooting your film.
0: No, the first day of shooting that scene. Right. You need the actors to be used a little bit with the atmosphere before they go to something like this. And um, this is because um, the regular atmosphere for such a scene comes from what happens in the background while you are focusing on the main characters. So for me, what was important is to make sure that this scene, as complex as it is it still focuses on my main character. So I started staging a little bit the situation by placing them in front of the camera. The camera was arriving on them too. And for me, it was important to see that, especially for Matthias, what what happens behind him is not of any importance. He has his own idea about his relationship to Chila. He wants to have her back. So that's his point of view, that This is what matters for him. And um, the other important thing connected with this, you know, it's a technical question, but uh, because we speak among directors today, uh, the focus pool have asked me, so I don't know, who am I focusing on? And we decided that the main character for this scene is Sheila. So um, we were focusing on Sheila or on whatever she was looking at. And this is how we got... have something coherent and the last thing which helped us get to the final atmosphere which i did on the second day is that you know for once uh, i stopped telling the extras shut up the actors are focusing they're concentrating just pretend you are reacting and i told them well you know what Uh, for once you can really react you you know shout do whatever you want Mm -hmm. react because i don't know what i'll do with the sound but and um This gave the actors a different kind of energy, you know, because all of a sudden they needed to, I don't know, to fight to to deliver their lines. Nobody was respecting them any longer. It
2: became real.
0: It became very real. It's technically, as you can imagine, it's a bit more complicated with the sound. And first of all, it was very chaotic for a couple of takes. But then I found a very gestural way of um, communicating with the actors. I took an Apple box, and I was kind of like conducting the scene as a conductor, delivering the level of energy of their reactions. So yes. little by little, I managed somehow to um, fix this so that I can hear the actors as well. And then little by little, taking, you know, uh, I shoot a lot of takes, of course, I there's no other way of, having something this staged and choreographed that, that you know, advancing.
2: How, how many
0: um, takes did you, up to,
2: how many did uh, you end up?
0: For, for this one, not too many, some 25, I think. 25? Okay. Yeah. It's a long scene it, to have
2: 25 takes of.
0: Yes, yes. And actually, it was this long that I couldn't remember all the observations that I, I needed to to have for every other actor. So I needed to play back, write this down, and this is why yeah. I needed a little bit of more Time, but right. and of course, at the end, I am picking up the the take which has the right rhythm, because right. what I do, I encourage the actors to say the same thing every time, and gives me this gives me the only freedom of eb- of editing later on that I have, which is on the sound level. Right. So all the scenes that you see in the film, whenever I'm shooting, these master shots have maybe fifty percent of their original sound, and the rest. Uh, bits and pieces chopped from other takes.
2: Wow. Okay. So you're you're editing the sound in a way, but you're editing within the scene. You're creating the drama with the sound.
0: The yes. What 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 matters if you shoot like this is that the scene has the right rhythm, right. because this is something that you cannot fix later on. But I work with an editor for you know fifteen years already, and we are capable of redesigning the dialogue from very short pieces. I mean we can cut away a vowel that we don't like. Right. So very small pieces. And this is why finally the actors have this feeling that actually they are very accurate and they play very, very well. Uh, of course they do, but I help them as well.
2: Um uh two small questions, uh whose answers you may not want to you may want to keep secret, but in the beginning, the child, and you mentioned this, it, Rudy does see something in the woods. What is it? Do you want us to know?
0: Uh, not specifically. Okay. Because, of course, if I wanted to show this, I would have showed well, it. it <laughs> is that, uh, you know, when we speak about anxiety and fear, um, the object can be very complex. It's not something in particular that he sees. There's something about children. Sometimes they have access um, to um, a layer of the world that uh, for which we don't as adults because we lost our innocence. So we don't know if this child is afraid of um, the future. Maybe he sees, uh, you know, he has a vision, he sees what's going to happen. Maybe it's just. An animal, or his animalic sight, if you want, uh, maybe it's something else. The only person who has the right answer is my mixer, because he needed to design the sound. And if you <laughs> listen to the sound, there is some sort of description. But what what matters for me um, is to for the audience to feel that there's something mysterious in the world influences influencing the way we perceive it, and that sometimes we need to fight back this this fear of the world itself. That That's important for me in that specific scene.
2: And a child would be closer to that because they're so... Um...
0: He would be closer to that because, you know, at the beginning, um, the world seems very, very big and you are so small and you have to try to, understanding, to understand it and you are afraid of a lot of things happening, especially if your mother sends you to cross the woods. Uh, This is like um, a little bit like a fairy tale, if you know. It's that situation in every fairy tale in which you start learning about the world by being independent, and your parents send you to the world. So at the beginning, you will see a lot of monsters in the forest. Of course. Eventually, some of these monsters are not real. They are coming from your own head. But these are the most difficult monsters to fight um, against. These that you imagine, and it's a lot about this in this scene.
2: Okay, and the other question is, why does Papa Otto hang himself?
0: Well, do we know when somebody takes his own life why he did it? It's hard well, to say. But um, if um, there is a <laughs> well, who who can tell this? I mean, well, you it's can very tell funny. because you wrote it. <laughs> Okay, Um, so um, it's never for uh, just one precise, specific reason, but if you talk to somebody that can interpret uh, his uh, medical uh, MRIs, you would have some of the answer. Because uh, at some point, Matthias watches, he reads somehow, he watches his MRIs, They are, you know, like a foreign language to him, but still he gets something from them. And it's not about this. It's also about something else. It's because the the world, the way he knew it, um, has changed so much that it became difficult for him and useless to be a burden for his family because he's not adept at this new kind of world. And he doesn't have any hopes that this is going to improve in his very traditionalistic vision. So it's a mix of all this.
2: I see. So he's the one looking at the MRIs.
0: He's the one, Um, is that it? uh, Actually, we are looking at the MRIs and Matthias is looking at the MRIs, but we as spectators can understand if we watch them better that um, actually there's something wrong with his brain. At least this we can understand. Um, And this is also a little bit of a metaphor. There is something wrong with his brain, like physiologically, but there's something wrong, I believe, with our brains in general, (laughs) considering how we behave.
2: No argument, no argument there. What lifts this film out of the ordinary and makes us think more deeply about what you're trying to say is the appearance at the end of The Bears. Would you be willing to talk about that ending?
0: Sure. Um, this is amongst the most frequently asked questions. In I'm sure. That's why I, started, I made it. I put it yeah, towards the end. So. I didn't yeah, want you absolutely. to get angry. Yes. No, that's absolutely... Um, that's important. Um, first of all... Um, Things uh, move a little bit from being fully realistical by the end of the film in the sense that they still have a realistic explanation, but at the same time, uh, they can be interpreted also as being a little bit more metaphorical in the sense that uh, once Matthias... um, um, listens to his dog who has something to tell him. Actually, the dog comes to inform him, to tell him, to make him aware that there's something evil floating in the air, in this village, in the atmosphere. You did a good job directing that dog, by the way. That dog was incredible. Yes, you, you, you can understand, you know. People don't understand. Normally they ask me, hey, you are very lucky there was a little fox over there in your funeral world. I wasn't so lucky, so complicated. But, you know, there's something that I need to tell you because there's no other way that you could know. Um, When people, uh, when when children play that little song um, at the kindergarten, that's our kind of national ballad. And that ballad speaks about the relationship between men and nature and about how his animals are his best friends because man is very close to animals and the dog is always the one um who comes to warn his master about the potential danger Mm -hmm. so his dog comes in the film and warns him there's there's something he starts shouting towards the woods hey who's there and then he starts checking on his beloved ones Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sound which matters there a lot because yes. in this village, people are chasing something or somebody. He starts uh, going from his children's house to his um, wife's house. And then there, this uh, evil floating this this thing in the air starts having a kind of, an, of embodiment that you can get a glimpse of. So he's following this thing towards the police station, he doesn't find any anything suspicious there, and he continues following this embodiment until he gets to Chila. And after he gets to Chila, he believes that he found the, the answer for what he feels is wrong in this village, and he shoots towards this bear, believing that it might be this animal. But, you know, seconds later, after he starts running after this this bear, which is clearly a bear, there are some creatures in the Mm -hmm. forest which are quite fuzzy and it's difficult to say. I like it. I like very much to ask people at the end of the shooting, so what have you seen there? And some of them have seen people. Some of them have seen bears. Most of them have seen people dressed in bears. But the answer (laughs) that I like the most, There are people saying, well, actually, they are not even real. They are embodiments of his own fear. Well, that's a very good answer. What matters for me in this scene is that Matthias, at the end of the film, learns that he is a dual, he has a dual character as well as we all do. And he is in between this dark forest, his subconscious, from where all the impulses come and lure him into the dark. And you know, on the other side, there is... um, the, the affection for this woman, the village uh, the music, the light, the empathic side of him and he needs to make a choice between these two sides as we all do. So for me what matters at the end of the film is what choice uh, do we make in our regular lives not what he choice, what choice he makes in the film
2: Well, I'm glad I saved that to the end because it's a wonderful summation of so much of what you have shown us and shared with us. And I just want to thank you for being here. And hopefully you won't wait such a long time before you do your next film so that you can come back quickly and we can meet again. Okay?
0: I would be very happy.
2: Okay. thank you so much. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.